0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Thy word—it It is in the light of thy word that we see light. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this uh, evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be further enlightened into the uh, mysteries of our salvation, understanding the grace that you have given us, that everything in our salvation is due to your grace. It's a free gift. It's not dependent upon works to earn it. It's not dependent upon works to maintain it. It's not dependent upon works to validate it. Everything is due to your grace, which is completely sufficient for uh, our salvation and every single sin that we can commit, and this life has been paid for completely by Christ on the cross. So, Father, we pray as we study these things that you would uh, help us to understand them, make them clear to us. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. We continue our study on salvation, and we're at a section where we are trying to understand what the Bible says about the relationship of faith to works. This is an area where there is much confusion, and as we have seen, you have three different positions. The first position is that salvation is the result of faith plus works. This is an overt, upfront uh, condition of works for salvation, where works may be defined in terms of being baptized or being a disciple, being um, morally good, uh, joining a church, being a part of a particular church. Whatever it might be, there is an overt, explicit condition uh, included along with faith in Christ. Then there is the uh, implicit condition, the subtle condition, the backdoor entrance of works that is typical of what we call lordship salvation. The idea that while you're saved by faith in Christ alone, the faith that saves is never alone. The true saving faith is always accompanied by uh works that validate that faith and if those works aren't there if you can't look at your life and see some change if there isn't some distinction if you aren't uh more moral than you were then you should question your salvation that uh, in fact as we have seen there have been those who've taken the position that that uh, a person can actually have faith in Christ and not be saved which is completely contrary to what the scripture teaches Now last time, in the last two classes, we looked at James chapter 2, which is one of the key passages people go to to try to demonstrate that faith must include works. And we saw in that passage that it was not talking about salvation, that is, entry into eternal life, but it was talking about being saved from the power of sin, that is, the ongoing spiritual life, or what we call progressive or experiential sanctification. Now, another passage that you find people going to frequently is found in the first parable in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Sometimes it's called the parable of the seed or the parable of the soils. Uh, we'll call it the parable of the soils because the emphasis in this parable is on four different kinds of reception to the gospel. And uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And before we get into the details of this first parable, we need to take some time to understand the context of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 in the Gospel of Matthew really represents the the beginning of the second stage of Jesus' ministry after he has been rejected uh, by the national leadership of Israel in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, we have this uh situation where Jesus casts out a demon and the Pharisees accuse him of performing his miracles in the power of Beelzebul. That is another title for Satan, in in the power of Beelzebul. And this Jesus terms the blasphemy uh, against the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is clearly testified to Jesus as to who he is as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he is uh, undiminished deity united with true humanity in one person. Uh, and he is presenting his himself, and these miracles are his credentials as the promised Messiah of Israel as foretold in the Old Testament. The national leadership presents a, a rejection of him, and so this is their condemnation. They have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we must say that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which somebody always asks about, can you lose your salvation if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a an individual sin. It's not a personal sin. It is a national sin of rejection of the Messiah that could only occur one time in human history and that was when Jesus Christ appeared in the hypostatic union. You cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. You haven't been able to uh, commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit uh, since uh, approximately 30, uh, 33 A.D. And in fact, none of us as Gentiles could ever commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because we do not represent Israel. We're not national leadership of Israel. So at this point, Israel rejects Christ, and there's a turning point in Matthew 13. At this point, Jesus begins to teach in parables. Now, that's not to say that he did not have a parable here or there before this, but the emphasis here is that Jesus is going to be speaking uh, in parables as a primary way of communication, and it marks a change in his ministry rather than openly explaining doctrine, openly explaining divine truth to those who might be receptive now that they have demonstrated their negative volition, now that they have demonstrated that they have rejected his messianic claims. He is going to couch doctrine in this parabolic form in such a way as to make it even more difficult for them to understand what he is saying. They have had their opportunity and now he is communicating to those who will be positive, uh, to his ministry. Now there are several parables listed in Matthew chapter 13 and they are called the parables, the parables of the kingdom. And that means that we have to understand a little bit about what is happening here in terms of the What is called the theocratic kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God relates at this particular juncture to what is going on in in Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of God is a theme that arches over the entire Bible. Technically speaking, the kingdom of God is a term that relates to the first attribute that we talk about in the essence box. It relates to the sovereignty of God, that God is the sovereign ruler over all that he creates, he is the sovereign ruler over all of creation, and therefore the kingdom of God uh, embraces the entire panorama of human history, and it includes the Lord's eternal reign over all of creation, as well as different manifestations of that reign in human history. His The earthly manifestation of what is called the uh, theocratic kingdom began in creation with Adam and Eve. God is the king, as we have studied in Genesis. It creates Adam, creates the man as his image and likeness to be a representative of God on the earth. So Adam and Eve are representatives. They are, we've used the term vicegerent they are his representative they stand in his place they represent god over all creation and they are to rule over creation as his viceroys and after the fall and adam's uh, sin that uh, that particular dimension of god's reign uh, is modified and then from adam to moses god is going to reign over the world uh, probably from the Garden of Eden. I believe that Genesis chapter 6, where it states uh, God's statement that my spirit will not, uh, King James uses the term strive, will not strive with man anymore. The, uh, the Hebrew word translated strive in that passage is a, Hapox legomenon, that means it's used only one time. And current linguistic scholarship suggests that the meaning of that word is abide or to remain as opposed to striving. And the idea there is that God continued to abide in the Garden of Eden on the earth prior to the flood. And there he administered his kingdom through various uh, patriarchs. Then once uh, God judges the earth Eden the original Eden is destroyed on the planet by the flood and God removes his presence from the earth and it's at that point that he begins to delegate responsibilities to man for uh, self-government this is the function or part of the function of the noahic covenant so it enters in the kingdom of God enters a new stage and then God is going to uh further clarify it through that it's going to come through or be be, uh, operational through Abraham and Abraham's descendants from Genesis 12 on. And then the first time we see the word kingdom used in the Bible is in relationship uh, to Israel. And God establishes uh, Israel as a kingdom, and he is going to rule through them. First, he rules through the leaders. Uh, He mediates his rule through the leaders, such as Moses, Joshua, the judges, and uh, then He establishes a monarchy, and he rules through the kings. The first king, Saul, is disobedient and is replaced by David. And it is going to be through David and David's descendants that God rules in Israel. But this kingdom itself fails in the Old Testament, and God executes judgment as he has promised on the nation Israel. So the New Testament then opens with the message of John the Baptist, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for the people to to repent, Israel is called to respond to his message. And Jesus continues that same message. It's a presentation of the kingdom as promised in the Old Testament. This is what we would call the messianic or millennial kingdom. However, Israel rejects that, so there is going to be new revelation given now. Since they've rejected Jesus as the king, there will be new revelation given where... That there is a new stage of the kingdom that is going to be characterized as the mystery form of the kingdom, the mystery form of the kingdom between the cross and the second coming, between the first two advents, or the, the between the two advents of Jesus Christ. So, at this stage in Matthew 13, Jesus is introducing certain uh, characteristics of that mystery kingdom. This is the visible expression of what we might call Christendom on the earth during the period between the first uh, two advents, between the first advent and the second advent. And so the first parable that he uh, explains is going to teach that during this period of the kingdom, there will be a variety of responses to the gospel message. Now, how this relates to salvation is, of course, that of these four different soil types that are represented here, it is often and most most often taught that only the final soil type represents the believer, that the first three represent Unbelievers. However, this does not hold up when you put the spotlight on the, on the text and you examine how this is understood. But see, too often the presupposition is, uh, is assumed that the genuine believer is going to produce fruit and only the fruitful believer, only the fruitful individual is truly saved. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says that there are not merely fruitful uh, fruit producing responses to the gospel, but there are other responses that do not produce fruit, nevertheless they do produce life now this parable that we're looking at in Matthew chapter thirteen verses one through twenty is uh, stated again in mark and mark chapter four verses three through twenty and luke eight four through fifteen and by evaluating the parallel passages we're able to get some clarification where there may be uh, a little room for doubt in terms of what Matthew is teaching. Now Matthew is going to use these uh, agricultural parables or our lord uses these agricultural parables in order to in order to communicate the principle. So let's begin by just reading the parable itself. And the summary of the parable is found in Matthew uh, 13, 4 through 9. Let's just begin at the context. On the same day, that is the same day that the Pharisees have rejected him, that they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, on that same day Jesus goes out of the house where he is staying. He sits by the sea. This would be the Sea of Galilee. And great multitudes gathered around him to listen to him. So he got into a boat. And he sat on the boat just off the beach, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So everybody's gathered around him, and he's sitting, taking a position of sitting out on the, in the boat. Now, in the rabbinical tradition, when the rabbi would begin to expound on the word of God, he would take a position of sitting. This is a position of authority. So he sits down and begins to teach, and he teaches with the parable. He says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in this parable there are, there are three elements. The first is the sower. The sower is uh, roughly a picture of God the Father. And the seed is the gospel message. And it is a picture of how God's, God's message is spread throughout the earth. The uh, four responses, four types of soil, represent four different responses. The first is seed that falls up beside the road on the wayside, outside of the path which has been plowed. So it would fall on ground that is hard, that is not receptive, to the seed at all, and there is no acceptance of the seed. The second uh, soil is described as stony places, rocky soil. So this is the and indicates something of the nature of the person who responds to the the uh, gospel as uh, having a rocky or stony heart or a stony soil a soul. And the that says something about the nature of the person's volition. He may be positive to hearing the gospel, but he is negative in terms of the spiritual life. The third category is thorns. This indicates that there is something external that comes up that creates a problem in the life of the individual. And then the final soil is good ground. Now, let's look at some basic details in terms of of exegesis. First of all, in terms of the literary structure... Of these parables, uh, the sower comes along and sowed some seed. And then he says in verse five, some fell on st- you have the first some seed falls on the wayside, then other falls on stony places actually it's not some fell but other fell others or other seed fell on stony places. and then that's in verse five, and then in verse seven it says, "And some fell or literally and others fell among the thorns, and then verse 8, but others fell. See this, you lose it in the English, but in the Greek, uh, the second, third, and fourth uh, soil types are all introduced in Matthew as well as Mark by the Greek word, a form of the Greek word, alas, meaning other, Uh, and this links those together. Luke uses a different word. He uses the word Heteros, and again in Luke, Heteros connects the second, third, and fourth soil types. So right away there is an, a structural organization to this parable that suggests that the second, third, and fourth soil types are linked together and connected uh, together. Now that, of course, in, in and of itself is not determinative in understanding the, uh, the parable. So we have to look at each individual uh, soil type. The sower is is ultimately God, but it it, it relates to the uh, person who goes out scattering the seed of the gospel. The seed is the gospel message that Jesus Christ has died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that he is the Messiah, and by faith alone, in Christ alone, there can be salvation. But not everybody responds to the gospel message in the same way. The first soil type is mentioned in verse 4. There we read, And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Now Jesus explains the parable down in verse 18. Therefore he says, hear the parable of the sower. Verse 19 when anyone hears the word of the kingdom the message of the kingdom that is the gospel message and does not understand then the wicked one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart that is he had the gospel explained to him he had a a basic understanding of it but he is not it's not a a positive understanding of it he can re- articulated back to you, you've had that experience many times, you've witnessed to people, they can tell you what you said, but there's no real comprehension about the fact that this is something that applies to them, this is something that is important for them, and that this means that unless they trust in Christ for their salvation, they will uh, not have eternal life. So the first soil in Matthew, the wicked one then comes, that is a reference to Satan, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. See, and the implication here is that unless the wicked one did this, this person might believe. And it's a clear indication of the possibility that the unbeliever can believe this is not the calvinistic idea that unbelievers can't believe but this is clearly the idea that if the wicked one did not blind the minds of man to the truth of the gospel second corinthians 4 4 then they would or could believe that at least that potential is there and implied in this particular passage now holding your place there turn over to Mark uh, Mark chapter 4, and we'll look at Mark's explanation of the parable, how Mark articulates this. In Mark 4, 3, we read, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Now, that's a little different from the way uh, Matthew presented it. And in Matthew, the idea is some seed fell by the wayside. The birds came, the birds came and devoured them. So we have the idea of the birds of the air, and of course this brings in uh, the idea of the prince of the power of the air, because uh, that is the role of Satan during this age. And birds in the Bible often represent that which is unclean. So it's an indication uh, that uh, of the involvement of Satan and uh, satanic forces coming to blind the minds of men to the truth of the gospel. In the explanation, Jesus says, or and Mark relates, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So this indicates, and Christendom is pretty much uh, united in the fact that this first soil type represents the unsaved, the people who reject the gospel, do not believe, and this is made clear in Luke's clarification. And Luke, when Luke presents Jesus' explanation, he says this. This is in Luke eight, verse twelve. Luke eight, verse twelve. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, out of their minds, blinds them to the truth, lest they should believe and be saved. And there it is most clear. The Luke passage gives us the most clarity, lest they should believe. So the indication, once again, is that it's possible for them to believe, but they uh, are deceived just as Eve was in the garden, and or they reject the truth and they don't believe, lest they believe and be saved. So it's clear that they are not saved. They do not believe, and they are not saved. So the first category is the wayside believer who does not accept the truth, does not believe. Then we have the second category, which is the the, um, stony places. The stony places. And in Matthew we find... Uh, The explanation in verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Now, I want you to notice this. First of all, he hears the word. That is, he hears the gospel. And immediately he receives it with joy. Now, in the Greek text, Matthew uses the word for receive here. He uses the word lambano, uses the word lambano, which is not a word that is normally associated with the gospel, although it is the Greek word that is used in John 1:12 for as many as received him. There's that word received uh, lambano for as many as received him to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. And that is a passage related to uh, related to salvation. Then in Mark, in Mark chapter 4, we find a similar explanation. Verse 16 of Mark 4, we read, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. They receive it with joy. Uh, This indication of joy indicates that they are believers. Uh, Joy is not something that is attributed to unbelievers in the scriptures. So they receive it with joy. And again, Mark uses the word lambano. But when we come to the passage in Luke eight, in Luke chapter eight, Luke gives us again more clarity. Verse thirteen. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word. And here Luke uses the word dechomai. D E C H O-M-A-I. The Greek word dekema, which means to receive, and is most frequently used in gospel-type passages. It is a clear synonym to faith, to accepting the gospel, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And then he says, and these have no root who believe for a while. They believe for a while, so it is clear from Luke that they believe the Gospel. Now, how long do you have to believe the gospel? The lordship salvation crowd says that you have to continue believing all your life well that 's a work salvation, and that is really the the real problem with the Lordship crowd is they can 't understand sin, they have an extremely shallow view of sin, they don't understand how depraved man really is, even though most of them are Calvinists, and they would uh, balk at the fact that I just said they don't understand sin, they actually don't, they think somehow that, that at salvation the sin nature is so ameliorated that somehow it is uh, reduced in its power so that now man is able to uh, live a life that is more pleasing to God, and that is just absurd, if not blasphemy. These are clearly stated by Jesus as those who believe for a while. Now, everywhere else in the gospel, it is clearly stated that the sole condition for salvation is faith. We've seen these passages, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. John 3:16, For by for uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only, unique Son; that whosoever believes in Him, whosoever believes in Him, should have eternal life and not perish. And John three eighteen He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he committed some sin. No, because he he. Uh, uh, didn't fail to persevere, no, but because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the only issue in salvation that's stated again and again and again is in Acts 16, uh, 32, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That the issue is believe, and the rocky soil response is to believe, but in a time of testing, they fall away. What happens is, or excuse me, I've jumped ahead. Um, no, in, the, in verse 13, those who believe for a while, uh, they believe for a while in time of testing, they fall away. So there is a testing, there's a temptation to, to sin, there is some sort of external pressure from adversity in life, and as a result of that, they give up on the gospel. They don't, They trust Christ as being sufficient to save them from their sins, but that the, but doctrine is not sufficient to solve the problems in life. So rather than growing and advancing spiritually, they rely upon their own energy, their own effort to solve their problems, and before long they're living a life that is no different from any unbeliever. But notice, this rock has no root, but it does spring up. See, the, these are the rock, those who when they hear receive the word with joy, it has it has sprung up uh, according to the initial uh, explanation. They, uh, verse 6, some fell on rock and as soon as it sprang up. Now, when a seed springs up, that means it has been germinated and there is now life. That, folks, is regeneration. So otherwise you have uh, something that's been given life and then it dies and it was never saved. But that's not the picture the picture is it does have life there is this beginning point of life but there is no sustenance from the word of god under the teaching ministry and filling ministry of god the holy spirit so that it is choked out by the by this temptation and it falls away fall away does not mean it loses salvation it means that that it falls away from dependency upon god the holy spirit and there is no 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 growth. Now, let me back off a minute and go back to explain the uh, agricultural essence of this, of this illustration. When a plant is planted, you take a seed and you put it in the soil, you water it, and it germinates. And it put, sends up a little shoot, and you have this little sprout develop. And as that is watered and fed, it begins to grow. It, it takes a long time before it produces fruit. For example, uh, some plants uh, for trees such as an oak tree uh, may take 60 or 70 years before it produces an acorn. Other plants take much less time. A tomato plant usually takes between 60 and 90 days before it begins to produce fruit. The point is that only a mature plant produces fruit. Immature plants do not produce fruit. Immature plants are growing. They are maturing. They are developing their stem. They're they're producing leafy growth, but there's no fruit there. It takes time for fruit to develop. And so what we see here in the first soil is that although it germinates and there is new life, there is no extended life. There's no development. There's no real stem growth. There's no uh, leaf growth. But there is life. So this is the believer who is saved, but has no growth whatsoever. This is no different from the believer we find at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you discover that at the judgment seat of Christ, that every believer's work will be evaluated. Some will have gold, silver, and precious stones. This is a picture of fruit in the life of the believer. And we discover that, verse 13, that each one's work at the judgment seat of Christ will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test or evaluate each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. That is the rocky soil believer. There is no fruit whatsoever, no rewards. He's saved yet as through fire. Now we come to our third, third soil type. So let's turn back to our key passage in uh, Matthew 13. The key passage in Matthew chapter 13. And we'll look at verse 21. Verse 20 and 21. Let's go back and Matthew does add another thought about the rocky soil believer, the stony soil believer. Verse 21 says he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. So there is some level of endurance, but it's temporary. There's faith, as Luke says, but it's temporary. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles, but he is still saved. Now, verse 22 introduces the third soil type. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Now, if all he did was hear the word, obviously, this would suggest that that he might not be saved. But in the context of the first soil that has been saved, this indicates the next stage in development. He uh, It's thorns, something external, the details of life, choke out his his, uh, commitment. And this is a basic issue in spiritual growth. What is your priority? And this is where most believers fail, is they might become excited about the Christian life for some while, some short time. They're they're emotional and they're excited and they enjoy the fellowship. But then as they begin to realize that the real message here is that doctrine has to be a priority, that doctrine must be a person's life. They must live it, breathe it, uh, apply it, walk it day in, day out. Well, that's just too much. I mean, there's too many things in life to enjoy, too many things to be a part of, and I just don't have enough time to always be listening to a tape, to always be going to Bible class, going to church every Sunday morning and Wednesday night. My, that's just that's just too big a commitment. So uh, they just get all in, wrapped up in, in their children's activities. They get wrapped up in their career goals and climbing the corporate ladder. And they're too busy to make doctrine the number one priority in their life. And this is what is pictured in verse 22. Here's the word, and the cares of this world. That means the concerns about all the details of life, taking care of the house, taking care of, of the yard, taking care of the garden, uh, children's activities, making sure that they're exposed to everything possible uh, rather than realizing that no matter what you do with your children, if you don't communicate to them, that the number one priority in your life is the Word of God, and you will organize your life around that, then you failed as a parent. It doesn't matter how many opportunities you give them, how many piano lessons, sports events, whatever you get them involved in, if you do not make it clear to them that doctrine must be a priority in their life, then you're a failure as a parent. So the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, that is, materialism, money, and the things that money can buy, it is not that it is any problem with having money. Uh, Often you hear people misquote uh, Timothy, uh, where Paul says that it is the uh, love of money which is the root of all evil. That is, it is greed, it is materialism lust, and money lust, that distorts the priorities, and this is a person who is more concerned about working 60, 70 hours a week in order to pay the bills and constantly keep up with the Joneses and everything else that comes along with this. And so the, the, the material details of life choke out his uh, priorities, his decision-making, and his spiritual growth, and he becomes unfruitful. Now, let's compare him to the thorny soil in Mark chapter 4 in Mark chapter 4 we read now these are the ones sown among the thorns they are the ones who hear the word verse 19 and the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful it is choked out it is producing growth so that the potential of fruit is there but yet they allow uh, other things other issues in life details of life to come in and choke out the word and so there is no fruit produced this is further defined and are explained in Luke chapter 8 verse 14 now the ones that fell among thorns are those who when they have heard go out and are choked with cares riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Now notice how Luke expresses it. No fruit is brought to maturity. There may even be the appearance of a little fruit there. There may even be a, enough growth there. I know that there are times you have a plant. You may have a, uh, I've seen tomato plants where it starts to, it puts out buds and it starts to produce a little fruit about the size of your little finger, fingernail. And then uh, uh, about that time of the summer you have a drought. ...or too much rain, and the plant dies, and so it doesn't bring any fruit to maturity. This is the picture of the thorny soil believer. They bring no fruit to maturity, so there's growth. They, they, they stay in the Word longer than the rocky soil believer, but they don't bring fruit to maturity. Consequently, there still will be nothing rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ... So the third soil represents the believer who grows possibly to spiritual adolescence. But there is no fruit yet, and no fruit brought to maturity, and so he he is also a failure in the spiritual life. Now, it is only the last soil where there is fruit produced, and this demonstrates that even among growing, maturing believers, there are different amounts of fruit. Some produce more, some produce less, some reach, uh, reach, uh, spiritual maturity, others go all the way to, uh, and become, they become spiritual adults and they are, uh, they continue to grow, uh, throughout their adult life. Matthew states it this way in Matthew 13, uh, 23, but he who receives seed On the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So there's different amounts of fruit. And, of course, ultimately it is God, the Holy Spirit, who produces the fruit in our life. Uh, Everything that comes out of the spiritual life is a result of spiritual growth. It's not the other way around. Prayer, discipleship, Bible reading, Bible memory, uh, church attendance, getting involved in uh, witnessing, evangelism, all of these are the results of spiritual growth. They are not the means of spiritual growth. And then along with that, it's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5:22 and 23. So there's different levels of fruit. Mark says basically the same thing. These are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundredfold. Notice he reverses the order. And then Luke chapter 8, Luke says that the ones that fell on good ground are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So they endure as uh, James expresses throughout his His epistle. Now, I want to make one other point before we wrap up on this particular subject, and that is that in this first parable, you have a picture of the seed which produces a certain type of plant. Now, if you go back to Matthew 13, you'll see that the second parable in the order here is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, the seed the seed in the first parable does not ever produce tear. See, lordship salvation comes along and says, well, you see, this person looks like a believer. They made a profession of faith. They came to church for a while, but you know they didn't stick with it, so they weren't a genuine believer. They're not really saved because if they were, then they're, uh, they're, they would have fruit in keeping with repentance and they would hang in there throughout their entire life. So, what they're saying is that he's not a genuine believer, so he can't be wheat. But you see, the plant that's produced, by, uh, uh, the, or the seedling that's produced in the stony places is still the wheat. The, the, the seed that is, produces the plant that doesn't bring fruit to maturity in the, because of the thorny places, because of the details of life choke it out, is still wheat. It's not a tear. You don't have the introduction of tares, which is a pseudo-Christian, until the second parable. So to to claim that the other two seeds, uh, the seed on the rocky soil, the seed in the thorny soil, that this is uh, somehow a pseudo-believer, just really destroys the entire context, uh, especially between the first and the second parable in Matthew chapter 13. So what we see here is the same thing that we have seen in all of the other passages that we have discussed, and that is that, that the issue at salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. That fruit, that is secondary fruit that is produced in the life of, of the believer is not uh, necessary, necessary evidence of salvation. It not, does not have to be there. In fact, what this has a tendency to do is to produce um, fruit inspectors in the Christian life where we run around looking at other people's lives and do you have the kind of fruit in keeping with repentance? Now, in uh, line with this whole concept of fruit and the necessity of fruit, in the life of the believer, let's look at one other passage that's used to uh, support this, and that's in John chapter 15, a passage familiar to us. John chapter 15, where Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the fruit of the vine. He compares himself to the vine. He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me. Now, as we have studied this many times in the past, I'm not going to do the technical exegesis this time because we don't have uh, the time for it. But every branch indicates every single believer. The phrase in me is not a positional term. And uh, if you look at the way Jesus uses the phrase in me in the Gospel of John, it is a relational term. It indicates fellowship. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, that's a bad translation, and you often have. Uh, sometimes they even have translations that go so far as to say he cuts it off, or takes it away, or removes it. But the Greek word there is iro, and iro sometimes means to take away, but but just as frequently it means to lift up. And in the ancient world, when you were uh, if you were a um, a, a vine dresser. And you are growing grapevines for the production of wine. then, as you came along and examined the young plants, you would take a look at the fact that there there's no fruit on this particular young plant, and there are branches that are developing down low, and they 're not quite getting enough sunlight and maybe uh, uh, maybe they're they're in too much shadow and it 's a little too moist there, so they need to be lifted up so they get more direct sun and they uh, don't get get in, in too much water, too much moisture. So they the vine dresser would come along, and he would lift up these new tender shoots so that next year it would be a firmer shoot, it would be a thicker branch, and it would be able to bear fruit. So the picture here is that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts it up. In other words, this picture is the immature believer who is not yet producing fruit, and that God comes along and lifts up that believer, does whatever is necessary in that life, uh, that individual's life, to to move them along to the next step of maturity. Then the next category uh, of believers mentioned in the next phrase, every branch that bears fruit he prunes. Now, in order for... the the vine to produce efficiently, it can't just let every branch that sprouts out start growing because that sucks too much energy and too much sugar away from the plant itself. So the the vine dresser comes along very carefully, prunes off uh, sucker branches and secondary branches that pull energy from the plant so that the main branches that will be producing fruit can then maximize their energy and more sugar production will go into into the fruit. So here you see that that the activity of God in discipline in positive discipline in training the believer so that as he matures he can produce more fruit and and remove from his life those cares, those distractions, those details that keep him from advancing and maturing as a believer so that it may bear More fruit. Then Jesus says in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. See, he addresses them as believers. He's not talking about abiding in him to be a believer. He's addressing them as the fact that they are already clean. They are already positionally cleansed, katharos, positionally cleansed at salvation. Because of the word which I have spoken to you, they have received the word, accepted the gospel. They are born again believers at this point. Verse 4, now he gives a command to born-again believers to abide in me. So abide can't be a term related to salvation, but must be a term related to uh, the condition for spiritual growth after salvation. He says, abide in me and I in you. This introduces the concept of reciprocity. That the more we have fellowship with him, the deeper his fellowship with us becomes. The more we learn about him, the more he reveals himself to us. The more we obey him, the more spiritual growth there is, and the deeper the relationship becomes between the believer and his Savior. So Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. In other words, you don't go out and produce fruit by simple morality. There is a difference between morality and the spiritual life. Anyone can, any unbeliever can be moral. Any unbeliever can have a high standard of ethics. But the Christian life is a supernatural life based on the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, and walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18. So Jesus is emphasizing here that you don't produce your own fruit, that it is produced through him and by abiding in him through God, the Holy Spirit. "...as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me." So abiding in Christ is presented as the unconditional or the single necessary condition for producing fruit. In verse 5, Jesus says, "...I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit." So the key to bearing much fruit, that is the hundredfold fruit, is abiding in Jesus Christ. And then he says, for without me you can do nothing. And then in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch. This is what took place at the end of the harvest year when the branches that had not produced fruit were pruned off and cut off, gathered together, and burned. This is a picture of divine discipline, not eternal condemnation. It's not a picture of the lake of fire. He is simply extending the metaphor of the vine and emphasizing the fact that the non-productive believer goes through divine discipline. Now, this is further clarified. The process is clarified in Galatians 5.16, which we don't have... 516 and following which we don't have time to go into but the point that we have covered today is simply that to be saved you simply believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now this wraps up our whole study on soteriology. We began by looking at the barrier that there is a barrier between God and man and this barrier is composed of six different six different components all of which all of which are solved, all of which make up the sin problem. Each of these components is resolved by Jesus Christ on the cross through the doctrines of atonement, redemption, propitiation, uh, the uh, imputation of righteousness, justification, regeneration, and being placed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did everything we need for salvation Therefore, the only thing that is left for us to do is to simply put our faith alone in Christ alone. He did it all. He paid the penalty. There's nothing we can add to it. In fact, if we add to it, we destroy the gift. It is a free gift. Works are not added to the package at the beginning. They're not subtly introduced as a a secondary evidence. They are simply... Uh, the product of spiritual growth. A believer who does not grow spiritually is in danger of forfeiting his rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So, these passages, rather than be a, being a warning of some types of people that lose salvation, they clearly show that, they are, or excuse me, they are clearly a warning to believers to pursue spiritual growth lest we lose rewards and become failures in the spiritual life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and be clear about them, realize that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and it's based exclusively on grace, on nothing that we do. And we pray that you would uh, just help us to apply these things Uh, consistently in our own lives and in our expression and explanation of the gospel to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.